Hello, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 137 for the week ending January 11th, 2019, the Double Doink edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help your organization improve its ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. As the Houston Texans stank up their playoff game and the Chicago Bears double-doinked their way out of the playoffs, the Seattle Seahawks lost but had a great backdoor cover. And in the college ranks, Clemson absolutely destroyed the previously undefeated Crimson Tide, all while the Trump shutdown continues into its third week. We're back with some great compliance and ethics stories, including Nissan and Carlos Gosen, Credit Suisse and the Tuta Bond scandal, OFAC and Venezuelans, cultural assessments, effective fraud controls, NAFTA II and what it means for compliance, individual prosecutions in 2018 by the DOJ fraud section, the impact of the Yates memo, and a new pharma code banning all gifts. It's a great episode. I know you'll enjoy it. Jay and I had a lot of fun doing it. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 137 for the week ending January 11th, 2019, the double doink edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Hey, Tom. Double doink. I love it. That's, that brought a smile to my face. Unfortunately, uh, not to the kicker who double doinked, huh? So, Jay, the uh, the Texans stank up uh, the playoffs last week. Uh, the Bears double doinked their way out. The Seattle Seahawks had one of the great backdoor covers in playoff history. Uh, Clemson absolutely destroyed uh, what I thought was uh, one of the greatest Alabama teams of all time. And, of course, the Trump shutdown has continued into its third week. But uh, those really take a second seat to some of the top week's compliance and ethics stories. So you want to hop into it? Yeah. Why don't you uh, tell everyone about our our good friend uh, at Nissan, uh, Carlos Gosen, and what not only has happened with the uh, progress of this investigation, but uh, some criticisms that have been levied against the uh, Japanese form of justice. So um, Carlos Nissan, uh, excuse me, Goshen, is the former CEO of Nissan, and he was arrested in Japan for um, engaging in nefarious corporate activity, uh, misreporting his income to Japanese authorities, and really uh, having the um, inanity to be overthrown uh, in a palace coup, basically. Uh, but apparently they play ball in a different way in Japan. And uh, take it up to a whole different level. They don't just throw you out. They have you arrested. 
And Mr. Uh, Gosen has been in jail for over 50 days. This week, he had his first court appearance. Uh, wasn't even a bail hearing. It was a court appearance. And um, he's imagined this. He's lost a little bit of weight, kind of toning up a little bit in jail, and uh, basically said that this was all lies. Uh, it was somebody else. Uh, and in a very surprising uh, articulation of what will no doubt be a very rigorous defense, he claimed that the uh, Nissan Board of Directors approved all of his illegal conduct uh, and making it legal. It's sort of like when the president says, well, if I do it, it can't be illegal. It must be legal. So um, I don't know if uh, he suffers from the God complex or not, but uh, uh, certainly from the imperial CEO complex. Uh, but he's still in jail. Additional charges have been brought this week. His, his lawyer has begun to talk about some of these defenses. Um, uh, uh, sh- uh, you have worked in the corporate world uh, part of your career, and um, you probably didn't have to face the fact that uh, uh, not only would you be subject to uh, termination, but in uh, Nissan, you're subject to investigation and par- possible criminal uh, charges filed against you if you have supported the former CEO. So uh, that's a level of hardball. Uh, typically, you don't see even in energy companies in Houston. So um, we, we've cited uh, to several different articles. It's just uh, one of these stories that, frankly, you couldn't make it up, and you certainly couldn't sell it as a fiction book because fiction has to be based in reality. And I really liked uh, the, the way you uh, uh, led into what I thought was a really significant last article that we linked to uh, Jay. And uh, the Financial Times of London, uh, the newspaper, in an editorial op-ed piece, questioned uh, the Japanese legal system, not for uh, its lack of rigor, not for its uh, uh, fairness in terms of presenting evidence, but that uh, basically in Japan you're um, uh, presumed guilty unless you prove innocent. And that guilt extends uh, up through trial. And in the pretrial phase, you're subject to being uh, jailed without bail, uh, as Mr. Gosen is. And uh, the FT uh, basically says to the Japanese, you need to be more like us. Uh, In one of the great imperialist uh, editorials uh, we've seen recently. So lots going on. Uh, This entire... uh, investigation of uh, former uh, Gosen's supporters. Uh, that, that I think, is the one that really jumped out at me, though, Jay, when you, as a corporate underling, have uh, supported a CEO, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, and now you're under investigation. So we will definitely keep an eye on this one. I've got, got one more quick question for you. We cited Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and the FT twice. The FT article mentioned something that starts to look more of a a general corruption letter dealing with procurement. What do you think about those charges? Is is that, again, the company just trying to, um, you know, paper over what's happened? Or do you think that's really an issue and uh, the other stuff with Gosset is kind of like suffered? No, no, I think it, it is an issue, and it really speaks to the overall tone and imperial CEO management style he had. Uh, you know, we've heard about him hiring his sister on a consulting contract at 100,000 a year. We've heard about these homes being built in Beirut, in Brazil, for his family with company funds. 
uh, undeclared as income company funds. And now there may be pro- uh, fraud in the procurement. And given um, this entire uh, tone and apparently Gosen's attitude that he he alone could uh, use these funds uh, this way, um, it doesn't surprise me that there would be procurement fraud, as, as Warren Buffett says, when you uh, pull the, uh, the covers away and you see one cockroach scurrying away, it's not unusual to find more. So when you have a, a CEO who is, if not outright corrupt, certainly so lax in his flouting of the rules, it wouldn't surprise me that that tone has permeated down and that he's directly involved in procurement fraud or other fraud, or that they may find other nefarious actions going on where he turned uh, a blind eye to. So uh, I think Nissan's got a long way to go to both investigate this fully, but you know, as with any corporation, Jay, once you turn a light into a corner, uh, you you may find things that uh, either one you don't want to know about, or two you didn't know about. So uh, now we go from uh, car companies behaving badly to investment banks behaving badly, and uh, we have another article from the uh, the FT, the Financial Times, which chronicles the rest arrest of three former Credit Suisse bankers in connection with the two billion dollar tuna bond scandal in Mozambique. Um, the Swiss bank uh, has had charges suggested against them by U.S. Uh, prosecutors, but they've taken a sympathetic view of the lending. Uh, the indictment filed by the U.S. Attorney's Office for Eastern District of New York highlighted failings by Credit Suisse's compliance department, even as prosecutors seemed receptive to the bank's argument that it had been the victim of the ever nefarious rogue employees. Uh, the indictment adopts Frankly, the bank's narrative that these are rogues, they lie to, and that what they did was done in secrecy. Um, so this, again, uh, harkens back to what we're going through uh, in the press with Goldman Sachs and the one MDB fund. And um, I guess uh, this is something that we had spoken about a couple weeks ago, that there is an element of this, that uh, a senior executive in the investment bank and Objected to the involvement of a company called Prinavest, which was an Abu Dhabi company, and a due diligence report, Candace Tall will love this, maintained by the bank, described the unidentified executive as a master of kickbacks, and as prosecutors alleged, nonetheless, they still move forward with this deal. So, Jay, the um, the uh, you're right. We uh, talked about the um, indictments and arrests. In an earlier podcast, and the reason I wanted to highlight uh, this issue for this podcast, separate and apart from what we talked about previously, because once again, you know, if I told you that somebody borrowed a billion dollars from Credit Suisse or floated bonds through Credit Suisse to to ramp up your tuna fleet, you might raise one eyebrow and say, "Well, uh, why don't you just uh, go on down to Cabo and uh, fish for your own tuna?" But um, apparently, um, the major Fraud here was not only by the Angolan perpetrators who kept a large amount of the money generated by the loan raised on the bond offering, but it was also the individual Swiss bankers. Uh, uh, it, It appears at this point Credit Suisse did not profit to the extent that Goldman Sachs did with 1MDB. 
where it's alleged Goldman Sachs took all the profit. Now, Tim Leisner may have been paid a bonus based on that profit, uh, but he didn't actually steal from 1MDB. At least he hasn't. Uh, that has not been alleged as yet. Here, we have the bankers, uh, the individual bankers who were indicted were uh, receiving the funds that uh, should have gone to the people, if not the fishing fleets, uh, tuna fishing fleets of Angola. So um, that may have been the difference, but uh, you're right to raise this uh, really interesting question of uh, why Credit, Credit Suisse was not indicted, and they may well yet be by uh, either uh, the current Angolan government, uh, U.S. prosecutors, Swiss prosecutors, or others. So uh, once again, a uh, really interesting case uh, uh, and one we're going to have to keep an eye on. So uh, back to one of your favorite petroleum companies in the world, what's happened in the world of Pedavesa? Well, this one is um, uh, uh, the continuation of the uh, bribery scheme, and this one is a little less Petavasan focused and a little more just general Venezuelan corruption focused because we had an announcement last year about the uh, uh, indictment of the uh, media owner of uh, Global Vision Tele, the largest uh, media company in Venezuela, and he was laundering money um, through a money lending network. And the U.S. Treasury this week uh, sanctioned that network, which allowed the money laundering. The actions are part of a comprehensive sanction strategy the current administration, U.S. administration, is putting, uh, using to put pressure on uh, now, uh, recently, uh, or rather now, uh, second-term President Maduro. Uh, the latest action targets former Venezuelan treasury officials, seven Venezuelan business people, and nearly two dozen of their companies uh, to freeze assets under U.S. jurisdiction. Uh, treasury Se uh, Secretary um, Stephen Mnuchin said in a uh, press release that the U.S. Treasury is targeting this currency exchange network which was another illegal scheme that the Venezuelan regime had long used to steal money from its people. And it exposes yet another deplorable practice that the Venezuelan regime insiders have used to benefit themselves at the expense of the Venezuelan people. So uh, the pressure this our administration, the Trump administration, is ramping up on Venezuela. And uh, it's, it's uh, probably going to continue going forward. So on this one, we cite to the Wall Street Journal, and we cite to something that you've been picking up lately on the Dipping Through the Geometries blog by Jonathan. Is it Rush or Rush? I pronounce it Rush, but I have not okay. confirmed that with Jonathan. So I want to share with everyone the last paragraph of his blog. More recently, the Russian government has sent two strategic bomber aircrafts capable of carrying nuclear weapons to Venezuela and a show of support clearly intended to bolster the Maduro regime and infuriate the United States. So uh, we, we're going to have a little uh, Venezuelan missile crisis on top of some um, uh, corruption. You know, that could uh, certainly make for a story in the coming weeks. Well, and who do you want to have sitting in the White House responding to such a crisis? Um, I'll just leave that one uh, for another day. 
All um, right, moving moving along, uh, you get to go again. Uh, we've got uh, a nice little blog from um, Rebecca Walker, our friend here in uh, Santa Monica, from the law firm of Kaplan Walker. What's on Rebecca's mind? So Rebecca uh, writes a blog for her firm, uh, Kaplan and uh, Walker, uh, that she and Jeff Cla- Kaplan have. And uh, this blog, Jay, is the culture assessment, the why and the how of the assessment. And uh, she had uh, five points that I wanted to highlight for uh, people who do cultural assessments to think about. And, and this can be someone uh, you know, coming from the outside, such as affiliated monitors, or it could be uh, if you have to do uh, really a, um, kind of a self-assessment. But she raised some uh, really good points that I just wanted to highlight. First, with respect, uh, with tone at the top, uh, explore what uh, managers say to underscore their expectations, but also what do they do? So uh, it's talk the talk, and then do they walk the walk? Second is uh, is the organization does it truly have a speak up culture, uh, or is it speak up and you'll be fired? Three, uh, <clears throat> what uh, what to the extent is it expected that people actually follow? the ethical guidelines of the organization? Is it uh, along the lines of if you miss your numbers for two quarters, you'll be fired? Or if you violate the code of conduct, that will be overlooked. Uh, Another uh, area is the uh, industry culture. And this is something that I don't think may get enough play, Jay. Uh, Even if your company uh, is run ethically, uh, what about if you're in an industry? So, you know, people would typically look at the energy industry, which is in places, uh, unfortunately, where there's a large uh, perception of corruption. Uh, even if your company is uh, whistle clean, uh, you may have hired people from other companies that uh, may not be. So uh, take a look at that uh, from the industry perspective. And then uh, really drawing from Wells Fargo, <clears throat> what is uh, a key aspect of culture is the extent to which Pressure and incentives make it difficult for employees to do their jobs in a law-abiding way. Now, part of that could be uh, if you miss your numbers for two quarters, you'll be fired. But at Wells Fargo, they took it to a whole new level that you had to open eight new accounts every day. Or, uh, you know, if you missed a few days, you were certainly subject to being fired. And that puts a lot of pressure on people to engage in illegal acts so uh, or, or even unethical acts. So. Uh, really good uh, series of questions, and, and I've just hit the highlights. She really uh, details uh, quite a few more, so uh, check it out. And then that leads really to the next article we wanted to highlight uh, that I ask you to maybe uh, give us your thoughts on. And our friend Jonathan Marks over at as Board and Fraud blog post uh, really laid out um, using internal effective internal controls to prevent fraud. So what's the secret sauce, Jay? Well, uh, Jonathan's always uh, putting together some great content that's very thoughtful about um, anti-corruption and fraud. And uh, basically in this piece, he talks about the fact that there are various kinds of fraud that organizations may be faced with, but uh, occupational fraud is the largest kind. And he said that, you know, the way to combat this is to use internal controls. And unfortunately, what he's seen in practice is that most professionals don't really understand the definition of internal controls or how to use them. So Jonathan puts forward the following. A good system of internal controls 
with the right balance of preventative, deterrent, and detective controls can greatly reduce an organization's vulnerability to fraud. Uh, he goes on to talk about the uh, traditional uh, fraud triangle and then even expands it into a Pentagon. And uh, based on a recent AFC study, occupational fraud schemes are typically classified into three categories, which are asset misappropriation, theft of cash data or property, corruption, which is bribes, kickbacks, bid breakings, etc., and financial statement fraud schemes, deliberate misstatement, misrepresentation, and omission of structured data. Uh, based on this study, victim organizations that had implemented certain controlled, uh, certain common anti-fraud controls, such as the following experience, less and lower losses. So things that one might want to consider as effective controls is conduct a formal enterprise-wide risk assessment, implement an independent whistleblower and ethics hotline and web portal, segregation of duties, timely reconciliation of bank accounts and management review, review and authorization of expense reimbursements, safeguarding and reconciliation of petty cash, and proactive monitoring using data-driven fraud discretion and detection and technology. So um, we cite to the article, but I think, uh, Tom, I know you, you are often talking about controls, and when we go in to help companies, that's an area where we really focus on because it seems to be um, uh, a potential weakness in any company. And if you have stuff happening, you know, especially like we we're just talking about and the Nissan matter that vendors are getting approved and they're not going through the right channels, those uh, definitely exhibit weakness and controls. So Jay, one of the things that uh, we think and talk a lot about in Texas uh, right after uh, the lack of a wall is NAFTA 2. And um, although it's <clears throat> the president calls it the USMCA or the United States Mexico Canada agreement, it's really just NAFTA 2. Um, and was in that Gomer Pyle in the USMC? Uh, that was the USMC. Uh, we've got USMCA. Yes. Oh, okay. yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, but uh, good call. Good call. Um, but uh, the USMCA uh, has a in a part called Chapter 27. And Chapter 27 is a anti-corruption section. And in this, um, there are certain obligations of the three countries uh, to harmonize their uh, anti-corruption enforcement, harmonize them through legislative measures, Harmonize them through, uh, you know, uh, passing laws for the against the bribery of public officials and foreign officials. Administrative measures for uh, putting in place uh, things like a, requiring effective in, uh, internal controls, requiring accounting provisions, uh, disallowing the tax deductibility of bribes, and then promotional measures where uh, the companies, excuse me, the countries will raise awareness among public officials. Uh, they will uh, recognize the harmful effects of facilitation payments and endeavor to encourage private enterprises to adopt uh, effective compliance programs. Uh, most interesting for me was that this chapter really came directly out of the uh, TPP, which of course uh, Trump withdrew the United States from immediately uh, upon uh, becoming uh, president. One so of the worst deals ever. 
yes, one of the worst deals ever, except the anti-corruption uh, part, which amazingly enough, given the corruption at this administration, uh, you would find at least, if not anomalous, uh, perhaps uh, securitous. Nevertheless, um, what's going to, uh, if uh, NAFTA 2 passes, will it change things? Well, it will certainly make Mexico amp up their Obviously, we have the FCPA here uh, in uh, Canada. They have the CFPOA. Uh, but what does it mean for uh, enforcement? It, really, for the compliance practitioner, this is great news, because if you have a streamlined, uh, adequate, effective compliance program, uh, you're going to meet the standards for all three countries and the prosecutors of all three countries. So that's, a, I think, a big win for compliance programs. Um, so it gives uh, the countries will actually leverage uh, more increase for buy-in and compliance programs. In addition to helping to streamline compliance programs, it's, it will probably increase enforcement in Mexico uh, because Mexico is going to have to amp its game up or face sanctions uh, under this uh, provision if they're levied. So uh, for the anti-corruption practitioner, for those who believe that anti-corruption is positive uh, throughout the world. This, I think, is very good news. It could be a model for other uh, trilateral uh, treaties that the, and more lateral treaties that the United States engages in. If this had been in TPP or if TPP had uh, gone into effect rather than having Trump pull out of it, uh, this would have put uh, this same provision in with the 14 other countries uh, who had uh, co-signed TPP in addition to America. So, um, very good news, I think, for the compliance practitioner. And, uh, uh, of course, NAFTA 2 is still uh, has not uh, gone to vote in the Senate. And so it's going to probably depend on whether it passes. Uh, but we'll uh, keep this one um, on our eyeballs. Rhetorical question. Should a Mexican company pay any disgorgement or fines? Could those monies be used to build the border wall? Uh, that would certainly be a, a claim that this president would make. Okay. Sorry, but somebody's got to, got to be a smart smart ass, Aaron. You're the straight man this week. Uh, next up, I have uh, an article coming to us, Adam Dobrik over at uh, Just Anti Corruption, the Global Investigations Review, and the DOJ's Criminal Division, uh, actually Criminal. Division's fraud section has released its review for 2018, summarizing its prosecution statistics. And one particular highlight of the report was a significant increase from previous years. Uh, in 2018, the fraud section charged 406 individuals, up from around 300 in previous years. The number of convicted individuals also increased to 268 in 2018 up from 270, 234 individuals in 200, 2017. Uh, but the spike in individual cases was largely led by the healthcare fraud unit, which enjoyed uh, particular support from the current administration. The Trump administration has made the opioid epidemic a priority, and in 2018, healthcare fraud, fraud charge I can't speak this morning, charged over 300 individuals. Um, ben Singer, who was a former chief of the healthcare fraud unit, um, made a good point that, you know, these cases tend to ebb and flow, and there was a significant investment in the uh, healthcare fraud unit since 2015. 
Um, all three units have added at least 10, uh, 10 prosecutors, and there were also expansions in Newark and Philadelphia. So while the number of DOJ criminal fraud prosecution of individuals has swelled across the U.S., there's been a steady decline in federal white-collar crime convictions since 2011. So uh, while there's, you know, I, I think there's always things to highlight, but you can't uh, be consistent across. And it's nice to see that the uh, focus on healthcare has uh, paid off. And, um, you know, at sometimes you're going to be up and sometimes you're going to be down. Uh, Tom, we've got another article from GIR about um, tweaking the um, Yates memo. What does that one say? So uh, Kelly Swanson over at uh, Global Investigation Review uh, wrote an interesting piece about What's going to be the impact of the Yates memo? And I think that uh, obviously uh, everyone knows now that uh, corporations who want to receive cooperation credit uh, will have to identify individuals who are substantially involved or were responsible for the wrongdoing. Uh, really no question they corporations have always had to do that. It's really backed off a little bit from the interpretation of the memo that said you must investigate uh, everyone. And this memo reflects the reality in criminal investigations. The companies really should focus their time and resources on the heart of the matter. It, uh, it quoted Christopher Casey, who had served under Yates as Deputy Associate Attorney General from 2014 to 2016, who said that uh, I believe the original intent of the Yates memo was to get away from a sliding scale of cooperation which had previously existed, where companies would provide some cooperation, some facts, but not all. The Yates memo was an attempt to get away from that, and it wasn't anticipated that uh, reading would be that lawyers had to interview everyone at the company. And this, I think, really refre- uh, reflects reality. Uh, so to the extent that form is following function, uh, that the uh, adjustment made by Rosenstein uh, on the Yates memo and now requiring not only the investigation of the matter, thorough investigation, but uh, turning over the names of those uh, employees substantially involved or responsible for the wrongdoing was an appropriate uh, change to make. Interestingly, though, Jay, uh, Kelly focused on the civil side of things, and we typically don't look at that. Uh, here, because, of course, the Department of Justice has responsibility for the criminal side of the FCPA. And while uh, the civil side of things is not going to be something compliance practitioners face, at least in the FCPA realm, certainly in uh, KETAM and uh, FC, FCA cases, uh, that could be uh, uh, something that's important. Because there, on the civil side of things, Rosenstein said that civil cases are different and the primary goal is to recover money for the government and that uh, when uh, the government had a binary choice, full credit or no credit, it took a long time to settle uh, because there was really no wiggle room for negotiations. And now in civil investigations, company must identify uh, those substantially involved, and this allows for a sliding scale of credit uh, for companies, once again, on the civil side of things. So um, I think this is, is really a, a common sense adjustment. Uh, it's not going to, uh, I think, impact uh, FCPA enforcement actions. I had uh, Philip Yurosky from Sherman and Sterling on uh, the uh, 
FCPA compliance report a couple of weeks ago, Jay, and I put this question directly to him, does this change in the Yates memo impact investigations? And he said, no, it really didn't because a company still has to go in to determine who was substantially involved and who may have been involved, but at a much lower level, you still have to have a robust internal investigation. So uh, he didn't think it was going to impact internal investigations, meaning that companies were not going to cut back on their investigations based upon this modification. All right, I was on mute. Uh, the last article we have today uh, portends a little potential sadness in Asia because uh, picking up an article by Dana Elfin, and uh, it is from uh, BNA, and the title is "No More Mooncakes: New Pharma Code Bans All RX Company Gifts." So over the past uh, several years, there's been issues about pharma companies giving mooncakes, and they've gone from just a simple pastry to elaborate gifts encrusted with jewels and precious metals. And uh, basically, there's been a new code that's taking effect in 2019, uh, put together by the uh, pharmaceutical industry. And basically, companies will no longer be able to gift mooncake pastries to business associates, a common exchange in China, and which usually is accompanied by cash payments to mark significant religious or cultural occasions in foreign countries. There's also sometimes uh, there is uh, condolence payments made as well. And um, basically... Uh, Ann Beasley, a director at Navigant, told Bloomberg Law, the notion of bribery is not universally understood, nor is conflicts of interest, and this creates barriers to effective implementation of company policies. Trying to have people follow processes without understanding the why behind it will inherently risk and mit will create misc and misapplication of standards. So basically, the 2019 code gets rid of any exceptions for gifts, including such things as mooncakes or condolence payments. Unfortunately, uh, I'm sure people who will want to take abuse, uh, take advantage of the situation will find another way around. But for right now, um, the pharma companies are starting to figure out how are they going to move forward with this in the new year. So, Jay, I would just uh, remind our listeners that mooncakes are not moon pies. And so if you think you can't give a moon pie, uh, you know, you need to go to <laughs> buy some moon pies and eat them yourself. Uh, mooncakes are stuffed with cash. And uh, the name mooncakes really doesn't translate here in the U.S. to what they are, which is just that gifts of cash. So uh, I'm of the opinion you can still give a moon pie. I don't know if they're the, the price higher than the 19 cents they were uh, that I paid when I was growing up. You know, they may have uh, price inflation may have taken it up couple of dimes, but, uh, you know, as a good Southerner, always give a moon pie. You can never lose giving a moon pie. So uh, I wanted to highlight uh, a great five-part uh, podcast series that Tom did with uh, Amy Barnard Bond, and it was looking at some of the uh, top corporate scandals from the last year uh, on Tom's podcast across the board, and they look at uh, Les Moonves and CBS. Goldman Sachs and 1MDB, uh, Facebook, Tesla and Alienbook at 420, 
and uh, the aforementioned Carlos Gosen and Neeson. So um, it's a great podcast. Uh, Tom, is there a new platform that you ended up uh, debuting on this week? So um, I'm on uh, Panoply, but I actually went to uh, on Spotify. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's uh, my unfortunately, my daughter's no longer a teenager, but uh, now her dad's on Spotify. So she thinks that's extraordinarily cool. So uh, I've uh, I listen uh, to Spotify. So I think you're totally cool. Not as cool okay. as Matt Kelly, but I think you're cool. Well, that's true. Um, but actually, there's uh, there's one thing I wanted to uh, to ask you to tell our listeners, Jay. You had a sure. pretty big announcement from uh, uh, about somebody at uh, Affiliated Monitors receiving a pretty big honor this week. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, we're we're very excited to congratulate our colleague Eric Feldman, who was uh, elected to be part of the ACFE, the Association of Third Certified Fraud Examiners Board of Regents, and he will be serving for the term of 2019 to 2020. And as many of you have probably heard Eric speak, um, he has uh, been uh, really involved in ACFE. He, he does a lot of teaching of their seminars, and I think it's a, a great uh, credit to his commitment the anti-corruption field, and we um, we definitely congratulate him and look forward to what he will bring to the organization in the next two years. So, Jay, we uh, we have a few minutes left, and of course, we have to talk about uh, the playoffs this weekend. It's not wild card weekend; it's the divisional round. So, uh, your Pats um, are hosting the San Diego Chargers. Um, it's not clear, although. Of course, the Patriots did win the division again. Uh, it's not clear uh, really how strong this team is or not this year. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm on the edge. I mean, whenever they've gone on to the Super Bowl, with the exception of the first year when they stole the uh, snowball from the range uh, from the Raiders, they've always gone in oh. after having a, a first round bye. So, in terms of like form and setting this up to run the table, it may be a little bit more char- uh, more challenging for the warm weather Los Angeles Chargers to uh, compete in Foxborough. And, um, you know, the only thing that's better than playing uh, winter football in Foxborough is having uh, snow on the field and a work release prisoner uh, just sweeping by a little bit of the spot so you can kick a field goal and win. That parable aside, uh, I think it could go two ways. I think uh, Patriots have been running the ball really good and uh, can use the run to set up, um, you know, pass plays for Brady. I think they'll be good. The Chargers have a really intense defense with uh, Joey Bosa. And I think what the Pats need to do is um, narc rivers off his mark and if if they put him on the run they're going to win they're going to win big if not i think it's going to be a close game going into the fourth quarter uh so i got to be a homer and pick the pats but part of me being um an alien in southern california would somehow like to see a rams chargers super bowl uh what do you think about your cowboys and uh the los angeles rams well uh your wish for la la's Super Bowl will end this weekend. 
because the Cowboys, <laughs> how about them Cowboys? They are going to just uh, stomp the Rams. They're going to stomp the Rams in spite of the fact that we have the worst coach in the NFL, the clapper himself, uh, Jason Garrett. Uh, but we're going to win because we have a superior running game. And for reasons completely unclear to me and unknown to me, the uh, front four of the L.A. defense uh, just seems to have taken uh, vacation the second half of the season. Uh, Nadamakan Stu, I guess uh, he's either gotten old or he's gotten injured, uh, but he's not the wrecking ball that he was um, when he cared. And I'm not actually sure he cares anymore. But um, so I, I predict the Cowboys are going to come through and then to take it even a step further, when we go down to Nolens, we are going to beat the Saints a second time. And uh, the Dallas Cowboys will be in the Super Bowl this year. So how's that for taking it to the limit? I like it. The one thing you forgot to point out is who is the defensive coordinator for the LA Rams? That is the son of Bum Phillips, the most beloved football coach in Houston history. Uh, it's Wade Phillips. And Wade Phillips is a former head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. He is a former head coach of the Houston Texans. Uh, he's a former head coach of the Nashville Titans. He's former head coach of the Denver Broncos. And uh, he is one of my favorite football players or excuse me, football coaches of all time. And if there was one man born to be a defensive coordinator, it's Wade Phillips. So Wade, I wish you the best, uh, except for uh, about three points. I just want to say, and I'm not saying Vegas has anything to do with this, but wouldn't this be a great way for Wade Phillips to finally help the Cowboys win? Um, you know, Death, I'd, deathly uh, silence on the other end, <laughs> having been, uh, him having been fired by Jerry Jones, my sense is his desire to help the Cowboys directly or indirectly is probably, uh, at a low ebb. All right. Quickly. The other two games, uh, I say chiefs over Colts and I say Saints over Eagles, unless something crazy happens at the end, like it did last week. What do you think about those two? Well, I would only say to you, doink, doink. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, you're going to be on the road in a couple weeks. Why don't you tell everyone where you're going to be and who you're going to Yes, if you're in the Bay Area at San Francisco, I hope you will uh, consider coming to my uh, compliance Masterclass. Uh, it will be held on the 28th and 29th in San Francisco, hosted by Jonathan Marks at Baker Tilly. Uh, 10.5 hours of uh, CPE and uh, CLE credit. Uh, you can check out more information by clicking through in our show notes, or if you want more information, give me a shout, and I'm happy to, uh, to share with you. So uh, with that, you want to take us home, Jay? Sure. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending some time with us for this week in the FCPA, episode 137 for the week ending January 11th, 2019, the Double Doink edition. Have a great weekend and enjoy the games. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we explore some of next week's top stories in compliance and ethics. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.